If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the Bonker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bonker Labs branding team. In this episode of The Transition, I catch up with Navy veteran Lee Mills, founder and CEO of Pixley, a visual documentation and collaboration platform for construction, insurance, facilities, and field service professionals. Back in November of 2022, Lee won the Veteran Fund's $100,000 pitch competition at the Military Influencer Conference. Since then, he and I frequently chat back and forth online, talking about the struggles of entrepreneurship and what's keeping us up at night. Between raising funding, managing his development team, and navigating long sales cycles, Lee brings an honest point of view on what it takes to launch and grow a successful startup on today's show. Before we jump in, be sure to subscribe to The Transition on your favorite podcast hosting platform and kindly leave us a review. Reviews help us spread the word about the show to other veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by MetLife Foundation and its commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Lee, my man, yes, entrepreneurship sir. is chaos. Chaos. Chaos and war. Chaos and war. Don't believe the hype, y'all. It's man, hard. I was jumping on. I'm all excited about my podcast interview with Lee because, you know, we've had to reschedule it a couple times. Freaking internet ain't working. You know, you're like, what is going on? <laughs> Get to my incubator space. We're moving. I got boxes all around. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, this is freaking chaos. Just another day of chaos in startup life. Yeah, man. I'm excited about this conversation because Lee and I have been following you from afar, you know, just through social media. Got a chance to meet in person at the Millvet Startup Conference. You know, once I found out what you were building with Pixley, I start connecting you with some construction professionals in my network. And I just think, man, you got a great story and you've been killing it, right? You've been raising a lot of money, but I know behind the scenes, it's still a grind. And so, you know, I think a lot of our listeners, some of them are sitting on the side of the pool, Lee, okay. and they are thinking about jumping in the pool. And what I want them to understand is what the reality of it is, is to get a startup off the ground. And so, man, mm. I'm super happy to have you on here. And let's just start by having you introduce yourself to those in the bunker who may not be familiar with you and what you're doing with Pixley. Sure. Well, thank you for having me here. It's uh, an honor and a, and a privilege. And to, before you jump in the pool, just realize there's no life jacket. That's All right. right. So <laughs> I'm Lee Mills. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Pixley. I'm a Navy veteran. I was on the aircraft carrier USS Constellation CB-64 for four years. Got out of the Navy and there was no transition. It was just like, figure it out. I figured out everything in the hardest way possible. I put myself through school working full-time as a telemarketer while I was going to college. Did really well at that. Became a sales trainer and then a sales manager. And then I had 200 sales reps, but nobody really wants to be in telemarketing. So as soon as I graduated, I jumped into tech. I was the first sales and marketing hire at a company called Backup.com that did online backups, as you can imagine. But we didn't have a marketing budget. So I had to figure out how to get customers, 
how to get users, how to get revenue without being able to spend any money on advertising or marketing. So it's all through strategic partnerships. And we pay on revenue share and cost per download and so on and so forth. Had some success with that. Became really good friends with my rep for PC World, who was our top partner at the time. That led to me introducing, being introduced to Olympus, who was launching this thing called a digital camera. I've been around the block. And they basically hired me to launch their digital cameras. And that's when I started my first uh, venture, which was Beyond Clicks. So I had my own marketing agency for quite some time. Launched Olympus Digital Cameras, launched into a TurboTax, worked with all types of tech startups and big brands. Then that led to me going in-house with one of my customers, which was Anonymizer that did internet anonymity before VPNs were cool. So if you go to Al Jazeera from, the Bro- from Brooklyn versus going to Al Jazeera from Syria, you see different types of content. The government became our biggest customer, had an exit with that, sold that to Abraxas, which was great. Went to Europe for a year for a turnaround startup, came back to San Diego. I was number three at a Yelp competitor called Mojo Pages. Very little budget. Again, back to growth hacking and strategic partnerships. I uh, was able to prove a business model, raised $5 million in 2008, a very difficult time to raise money, not too unfamiliar than like right now. Launched a spinoff called Mogul that did cashback rewards and loyalty. Did some other ad tech stuff. And then I started consulting for a company called Raken that does what's called construction daily reports. And the first technical co-founder was a friend of mine. So I was helping him as a friend. And then they paid me to do their marketing. And I started listening in on demos for our BDRs and SDRs. And I had this aha moment. I'm like, wow, construction people are a lot like us. They're very proud Americans. They're really proud of their projects. They work together in teams. And they have a lot of pain. They get up really early in the morning. They miss out on their kids in the morning. They come home late at night. They commute far. And they're under tons of stress because 50% of projects have disputes. Sorry, 30% of projects have disputes. And the average dispute is like $50 million. So I had great success with Raken. One of my pillars of my go-to-market strategy is always to partner with the big guys. So I was trying to partner with a few of the bigger players. That led to me going to PlanGrid. PlanGrid was recently acquired for $895 million by Autodesk. It's a huge success story in the prop tech space. And then I did some fractional CMO stuff before I realized that the industry, mainly construction, needs a super simple, fast, and easy way to document and collaborate on the projects. So I came up with the idea for Pixley right before COVID with two co-founders, and it's been a wild ride since then. Love it, man. Let me ask you this question, because you and I have been spending a lot of time chatting back and forth online, you know, just through LinkedIn. And one of the things that you said to me was, it's important for you to be able to build generational wealth for your family. Yes. And a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like that's the motivation lately I've been coming across, right? Because it is a grind. And <laughs> I am like, I enjoy being an entrepreneur, right? I'm not necessarily focused on generational wealth yet. Right. I'm more on focusing on improving my craft of being an entrepreneur, being able to launch products and services, create categories, you know, the art and science of it. But I've had this epiphany lately, though, because I do do coaching and, you know, some entrepreneurs, they, they have this aspiration for generation wealth. And I'm like, well, you need to solve a really freaking big problem if that's what you want to accomplish. And so I'm kind of curious to learn what led you to real that kind of realization for yourself and more so. What gave you the confidence to step out and go for it? Uh, great question. So on a generational wealth thing, so I have a two and a half, soon to be two and a half year old daughter. 
Before then, it's all about make money, have fun, solve problems, bring me the pain, whatever. But now that I have a, a small family, it's all about helping her be successful and not have to go through the trials and tribulations that I've had to go through and helping her hopefully making the world a, a better place. Uh, what gave me the courage to do it was I saw an opportunity um, during my career. I've always tried to pay it forward and I, I mentor at risk youth through Big Brothers. I was Big Brother of the Year in San Diego in 2015. I mentor startups through a group here in San Diego called Connect. And that's where I met my original uh, co-founder CTO. And he had a, an idea for an earlier version of Pixley, but he wasn't a sales and marketing guy and he couldn't get it off the ground. So before I did anything, I took the concept to some of my former customers and other people and said, hey, would you pay for this? Does this solve a problem? And the overwhelming response was yes. So before we incorporated before we did a line of code before we did anything i spent a lot of time on customer development and i knew that we solved a major problem and it's a massive opportunity and based Love on it. all the early stage startup stuff i've done mostly growth hacking without a budget i knew i was just super confident and bullish i could do it i'm taking a mental note because i do want to talk about growth hacking and go to market but i also want to give you the platform you know to tell the pixley story uh but before we do that okay the reason i asked you this question and I want you to guide our listeners. I think I'm going to write or do a solo podcast on your kind of on an entrepreneur flywheel, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm worried that too many first time founders are taking a big swing, mm -hmm. trying to hit that home run mm -hmm. before they got a base hit. Mm -hmm. So they've never sent an invoice and had it paid, you know, never mm -hmm. cranked open a Google Doc and wrote some nonfiction and turned into a company. And I think because of Shark Tank and the, the plethora of entrepreneurial education out there, people are thinking that they can win this game when they haven't even learned the basics yet. And I'm curious from you because you're a seasoned entrepreneur at this point, right? You've been on the inside, right? You've done fractional work. It's still freaking hard for you. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. And it's really lonely. And I politely say it's a kick in the pants, probably 90% of the time. But when you get that validation and somebody offers you your, their credit card to buy your service before you even ask for the sale, or they want to add 100 more users than you're expecting, that that high makes all the lows worth it. But it is So am hard. I wrong in my thinking, though? Am I wrong in my thinking and challenging our listeners that this is their first time launching a venture to, you know, just get on base first with the understanding that, hey, your goal is to win the game. It ain't to sit on first base and camp out. But I think there's levels to this game. There are levels. I mean, the first level is validating with absolute certainty that you solve a problem that people are willing to pay for. You might have the greatest idea in the world, but if people aren't willing to pay for it, and we're not talking about your friends that don't want to hurt your feelings, strangers, don't do it. And you got to make sure the juice is worth the squeeze. And what are you really trying to do? You could be, I, I have a friend that owns a pool cleaning business and he does really, really well but he's not going to create generational wealth. Yeah. He's got a great got a lifestyle. That that too. And there's nothing wrong with having a great lifestyle business for sure. But B2B SaaS and tech and it's all sexy and looks amazing. And everybody wants to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Your chances are like 0. 0.00001 of being that person. There's a yeah. chance, but don't get me wrong. There's always a chance, but everything, everything I've done so far is way harder than I thought it was going to be and took way longer. And I had a, I have a playbook. But I started like right before COVID. So that slowed us down. Then trying to raise capital during COVID was hard. And then there's just a host of things that you, you know, you kind of got to look over your shoulder and you're six because you don't know what might be coming at you. 
Let's start there, man. We're going to take off our armor. We're going to get a little vulnerable, right? <laughs> so you've won some pitch competitions, right? It's yeah. all good. You've been on stage. What's keeping you up at night now currently? Growth. So, I yes, I would not be here if I did not win the Veteran Fund $100,000 pitch competition. That did a few things. One, the Navy for me was quite a while ago, and I had no idea about MIC or this community that's growing and helping each other and doing all the things that I desperately needed when I was getting started. But one of the best things I've ever done for myself was Toastmasters. I cannot recommend it highly enough because the number one fear for pretty much any human is public speaking. So it's one thing to do a, a presentation behind Zoom in your in your garage or whatever. It's another thing to get on stage and do it in front of three, four or 500 people. And, and literally, you have to psych yourself up for it. And you have to practice and you have to rehearse and you have to do it over and over and over again. The other thing that's hard about or challenge about being an entrepreneur is, you know, everybody's got an opinion, right? Everybody has, everybody shares one or two things. You have to be open to criticism. And that criticism is, is usually intended to help you do better, right? So you have to have thick skin because you're going to get told no 99% of the time. But every time I would rather get a no because I know I'm closer to the yes. So tell me if it's an investor, just, okay, if we're not a good fit, tell me right away. Because I know, because I'm, I'm not doing I'm doing you a favor by inviting you to participate in this company. You're not doing me a favor. So for our listeners that hear that you heard that you want $100,000, are you, did you put that in your personal bank account and now, you know, got a nice little salary? You know, no. what's life like on the other side? No, I've taken zero of that. It's all gone back into the business. So we started Pixley right before COVID and then fast forward to winning that pitch competition, our code had been, it needed to be refreshed. So basically that money went into completely rebuilding our entire platform. We were pre-revenue. We had a lot of letters of intent, some free users and everything's looking great, but we rebuilt the entire platform. We started commercial sales this year. Before then, it wasn't ready to accept, I wasn't ready to charge anybody for it because it had some bugs and some issues. All right, let's unpack this for a little bit. Okay, when you say we, Who's on your team? And the reason I ask is you you have a lot of founders that think they have this great tech idea. And tech is super expensive these days. I think software engineers are like at an all-time high, right? So do you have somebody internally on the team building the software? Have you hired like a, a develop shop? You know, let's let's break it down for our, our listeners. Yeah. So the first go around, we had an Indian offshore development team build the first version of Pixley. They did not do a great job. And so I fired them and never say never and always is a lie. So as I told myself, I'm never going to work with the team in India ever again. I'm so jaded. I'm never going to do it. No way. No if, ands, or buts. I probably said it a thousand times. Well, guess who I work with now? A trusted offshore team that I can afford. So I have five offshore engineers in India who have completely rebuilt our platform. Game changer. I trust them. They're my go-to guys. I spent, I get up very early every day. I do the hard stuff, which is cold calling, mainly sales focused all day. And then at night, I work with my engineering team on product specs and build outs and QA and QC stuff. So pros and cons of working with an offshore development team versus building in-house? The pros are it's a lot more affordable than hiring somebody in the States. That's the number one reason anybody does it. The cons are there's several cons. One is the time difference. So most nights I work with my offshore team between nine and 12 or one in the morning. The other thing you have to be 
really aware of is you have to give incredibly detailed, specific instructions on exactly what you want done. There's not always a lot of critical thinking like, hey, that's a great idea. But if you thought about this approach, you don't get that so much. So you have to like a product spec has to be what you're doing, the user scenario, what the user expects, and even some draw some markups or some drawings. And you have to hold people accountable like on any any team and get deadlines and deliverables. So because you're ultimately simultaneously trying to sell and get letters of intent and early interest. So you got to make sure all, all the wheels are all the gears are going in the same direction. Have you flown to see them in person or is it all just online? It's all been online so far. Yeah. Yeah, all online. Yeah. Uh this is this is great insight. Okay. So for all you out there listening, right? There you got to do the research on this because there's just a lot of speculation, right? It's not enough just to come up with a great idea, right? There's a lot of back end stuff that you got to be aware of. And you hearing you Lee talk about the specs and you know the product roadmap and all these different things, right? You didn't go to school for like product management or nothing, did you? No, sales and marketing, advertising, yeah. So how did you bring yourself up to speed business acumen wise? Mainly through my career and experience. So all the, most of the startups that I've helped previously, I'd worked with offshore teams and early stage startups are all customer driven. So I might have the best idea in the world, but I'm going to build what my customers want or my potential customers. So every time there's a new release of Pixly, I call all my customers, I show them a demo. I'm like, what's important to you? What do you need next? And that's, that's what I build. All right, so you've had experience having your own agency, right? Which I have to imagine was fairly profitable. Yeah. You transitioned to startup. Why go venture capital as opposed to bootstrapping it? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm hitting it with all this stuff, man. Yeah, I didn't yeah, hit bring it. I didn't, I bring it. I'm an open book. Like I, I'll, I, I will tell you everything. Can we go like two, three hours? How much time we got? So We're rolling. I saw it. So again, I started the company right before Pixley. I want, I'm sorry, right before COVID. I wanted to raise as little as possible because selfishly, I wanted to have as much equity in my own business as possible. So I raised just a little bit over $100,000 because I thought the first MVP be about 60 grand and then the rest could go to sales and marketing, early customer development, right? And then COVID happens. So what should have taken six months to build took a little bit over a year. And again, it had to be scrapped and, 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 and rebuilt. Uh, why do you think that was a good question? Oh, I didn't go back to it. Sorry. So I didn't want to even raise venture. I, you have, well, there's a couple of things. There's a lot to unpack here. So to grow fast, you either have to have something that's so incredibly viral that everybody's talking about it, like, like Uber or, what, or whatever, right? It's just a game changer, right? If you don't have something like that, you have to invest in marketing. And if you're, doing, if you're building a technology company, you have to pay people to build it unless you're a coder. So I can do sales, marketing, financial model. I can do everything except write lines of code. So I wanted to bootstrap it as long as possible to get to a certain metric of annual recurring revenue and, and MRR where the terms are more favorable to me, the entrepreneur. I want to get the best possible investors with the best terms for me. And ultimately, it's super important no matter who it is. You know, I want to work with people I like and trust, enjoy working with that add value to me, my business and my customers. The whole venture capital thing is I'd, I'd rather not do it if I had a choice, but I have to do it to grow. So it's like I did that Vets and Tech pitch competition in, in San Francisco. I got second place, the first loser, but I got 10 grand out of it. And they did a really nice social post. And then I've been talking to Kiyosera 
mobile phones for quite some time about partnering. And we've agreed to partner, but we didn't have anything in writing. And they said, hey, can we share that? Can we share your social posts? I'm like, yeah, go for it. So to my surprise and delight, all over LinkedIn, they say, hey, congrats to Lee Mills and Pixley, our newest Kyocera partner. I'm like, oh, awesome. Well, I guess I better start building Android. So I started building Android and without venture capital, right? I'm going to pay for that on my own because I know the end result will be a partnership with Kyocera. One of the beautiful things about the internet is it gives us this platform to share knowledge and insights and constantly kind of update it. And I've spent a lot of time consuming content in what's called the indie hacker movement. So this is the bootstrap startup founders, guy named Rob Walling. He was on the podcast. If you haven't listened to his episode on Start Small, Stay Small, a developer's guide to launching a startup, go back and listen to that episode. Okay. And he has a badass show called Startups for the Rest of Us. And then also had Justin Jackson on here. And Justin is the founder of, co-founder of Transistor, which we use to host all our podcasts. And these guys have launched like products forever. Well, one of the things that's happened is that even in the indie hacker space, as much as they've been, you know, pro bootstrap, they've also come to recognize that like you can get there, but it might take a long time. Right. And the whole thing about raising capital is if you do it right, it's going to allow you to get there quicker. Right. And so, you know, there's multiple ways to kind of skin a cat, but I do think people need to recognize that like, yo, once you start raising capital, man, you're on the hook. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to answer to those investors. That's not just free money. Right. You know, you got to send investor updates. Right. When you're making decisions, now you got to update your board. They may have a board observer, your board of advisors. And so for some founders, it can also even feel like having a job again because, you know, you start this business to be, you know, independently free and yada, yada, yada. But then you start bringing other people into the company and now you're you're tied to it. That's right. Yeah, you have a boss. The board is your boss. The investors are your boss. Because the only thing that matters, you can have the best mission, vision, all the things you want to do, and you're going to change the world. The only thing that matters is revenue and revenue growth for investors, because that's what they're going to get a return on. There's a multiple of that. What do you equate your ability to raise capital as? Because, you know, a lot happened before COVID. When you won the pitch competition with the Veteran Fund, did you already have proven traction? Or was this raising capital actually help build out the product? When I won the pitch competition, we had LOIs and we had some freemium users starting to grow, but we didn't have any actual revenue or paying customers. So that was an investment. So that came in the form of a safe note. That wasn't a gift or a grant. That was an investment. That all went back into the business. I give myself an A, public speaking and pitch competitions on raising capital Man, that's a tough one. I probably give myself a, a B. I've turned down a few offers that that didn't align with what I thought the valuation of the business was. I talk to investors all the time. I'm I'm excited to go to Context Ventures event, Milvet's event. I was for Pixley's a top 150 listed by those guys. That's a huge honor for us. So it's a complicated subject. It's all about finding the right investor that believes in you, your business, and can be supportive and collaborative and hopefully smart money. They can help open doors and introductions and customers. There's smart money and there's dumb money. So dumb money is they write you a check and that's okay too if it's the terms are favorable to you. But if they're not actually helping you grow the business with introductions or partnerships or anything like that, then that's something to think about. You know, I always align it to values. Right. Do values align, whether vendors you partner with, you know, team members that you hire, investors that you take their money. 
That's super important, right? And the longer I've been in this game, the more and more I start to appreciate it. Because although I do not have a venture back startup, as you know, I run a nonprofit organization and I got a lot of stakeholders, right? Yeah, sure. And I really appreciate the caliber of stakeholders we have with us because they really believe in what we're doing with amateur boxing. And early on, when I was trying to raise money, a lot of people thumbed their nose at me because what are you going to do? How does boxing change lives? You know, yada, yada, yada. So I'm very thankful for the people I have now and the value that they're providing. So you're good at public speaking, but sales is like freaking hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> what did it take to go from having LOIs to eventually start closing deals and driving revenue? A couple things. One is I, I nurtured every, every, anybody that downloads and installs Pixie, they get a phone call from me right now. And then there's a series of email nurtures that they get. And I was doing pre-sales before we even started writing any code. So all the people that said, yes, I buy this, those are the first people I went to. All the LOIs, those are the next people I went to. And then I did some growth hacking to get some inbound leads. But it's a couple things. It's first, you have to ask for the sale. Like you have, a, this is your problem, right? We agree. That's the problem. I just showed you I can solve it, right? Yeah, looks great. Okay, let's move forward. I'm going to send you an agreement. Are you ready to start subscribing? and Ready to pay for the service? Let's talk about the problem. What is the problem that Pixley solves for the customer? So the problem with construction, building maintenance, anybody working in the field is time for one, but there's also so many disputes. So for construction, 30% of projects have disputes. The average dispute is $50 million. It's a lot of finger pointing. The dispute could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen 10 years from now. And the best documentation wins a dispute. And the best documentation is photos and videos that are time date, location stamped, and pin the maps that basically serve as an insurance policy. So for one thing, you have to document pre-existing conditions. So you might go out there to build a custom home or a new office building, but you didn't know there's a major gas line running underneath it. That sets you back and you have to replan and reorganize how you're going to do the foundation and everything else. It could be, it could be Sarah, Sarah Smith is having her kitchen remodeled on. And the contractor painted the backsplash the wrong eggshell color white. Well, damn, that really sucks. That might be $500 to fix, right? Or it could be building something massive and they lay it 15 yards off, off center. So they have to do documentation and they do it. But the ways, the workflows that they do it are super painful. Either they have really complicated software that does everything from financials and project management and blueprints and drawings. And they do project photos. But... To navigate through their platform on the app takes like four or five minutes, which means people aren't doing it, right? That's one problem. The other problem is people just text stuff back and forth all day, which means it's mixed and it's lost, or it's mixed with your baby photos or motorcycle photos or whatever. Phones run out of storage. People quit. People get sick. They break. Um, And then the other workflow is on bigger projects, somebody goes out to the job site every day. They take a bunch of photos and videos. Then they go back to their computer in their office or their trailer or their truck. They upload them to a server, get them organized in a folder, download them to their computer, mark them up and draw circles and arrows and comments, and then email them to dozens of people every day. So what we've done is we've created the fastest, easiest way with the it's a platform, but with the app, you take your photos, they're instantly shared. Anybody that's invited can collaborate. They can add tags, or we have a patent, by the way. You can add comments and assign tasks with an industry we call punch list. So one of our customers said this, and I hope it's not offensive to the listeners, but it's like, Pixley's like Google Photos, Instagram, and Slack had a baby. 
So it's all your photos and videos in one super secure place. It's encrypted, it rests in storage. Anybody can see it and flip through it, add comments, ask questions, and, and get to the answers faster and protect themselves from disputes. I know the construction space because I have a few construction clients that we do podcast production services for. And the end user, so the people in the trenches doing the construction, they're not like product marketing. It's a very blue collar, yeah. you know, hands-on kind of space. Yeah. And the reason I ask this is because, one, I know in general, con contact or whatever they call it, it's been slow to like adopt technology. Yeah. Right. People are still firing off emails back and forth and stuff. They're still kind of texting back and forth. And so they're still using what, paper. They still write reports yeah. and inspections on paper. Most small businesses, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. But, you know, these tech enablement, because you go to a small business, it looks like you and I's office, right? Like, <laughs> you know, boxes everywhere, papers and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, people are slow to adopt. And so what I was going to ask you is two questions. Why do you think, because these, this clientele knows that this is an issue, why is it not a hell yeah, sign us up for Pixly? It's the first question. And the second question, how are you navigating the, the switching cost, right? So I've been doing this way forever. Like, it's going to be hard for me to stop working on Google Docs now. Because sure. I've been doing Google Docs, like, hardcore the last two years and really hardcore the last two months to where, like, I pay for Notion. I pay for all these other software. And yet I'm still in Google Docs tagging people. Yeah. So it's really hard to change behavior, right? What we're changing is workflows. So there's, there's two things. One is there's a huge worker shortage in construction. And if anybody is afraid to, to jump into the pool or the ocean for entrepreneurship without a life jacket, get a job in construction because you won't have any student loans. You won't have any debt. And you'll be making six figures in a short amount of time. And, but you'll be working hard, but it's meaningful work. But really, it's because everybody is sick and tired of getting their phones blown up with text photos all day long. It's, un, it's, it's unmanageable, unwieldy. It's, it's difficult. It's challenging. And then we solve a major problem, which is disputes. So, And to add on to that, the, the workers are changing. So the old salty, crusty superintendents that I love are my people. They, they, they hunt. I, don't, I do everything but hunt. They hunt. They ride motorcycles. They surf. They ride dirt bikes. They drive trucks. They do all this stuff. I can... I can resonate and, and, and connect with them on all types of ways. But a lot of those guys are retiring out. And the younger people that are coming into the workforce grew up with iPhones and Androids and tablets and stuff. So there's also a lot of people that are graduating with construction management degrees. So they know all about the coolest tech and all that stuff. But guess what? They never built anything. So they actually don't know how to physically build. So I go to a job site. I, say, I ask my customers, what's your biggest problem? Just like, well, finding people to do the work. Okay, next teaching them how to build. I'm thinking out loud here. <laughs> because the disputes are like a big issue legally, right? Do lawyers represent a potential Trojan horse? They do. And I've spent some time reaching, some time reaching out to the big, what we call ENR, which is the engineering news record 400. It's like the Fortune 500 of construction. And so, yes, but construction is also interesting. So you could be a billion dollar construction company and you could have 100 projects going on. The superintendent, who is the god of that project, he or she can do whatever they want. The CEO might say, hey, you have to use this software. It's like, nope, I'm using this. Okay, whatever you want. Because that person's on the line to get the project done. So for bigger construction companies, what we call general contractors, you typically have to win a pilot project. 
because they've been burned before. They've had really great salespeople sold to the CEO or the COO or whatever, but they don't get the field to adopt it, which means they just wasted a ton of money. So the industry as a whole for the bigger construction companies, you have to get a pilot project, which we've done. You prove yourself, then you get buy-in, and then you get to work, you get introduced to more pilot, more projects regionally before you go nationally. So when I have my B2B SaaS sales hat on, I'm like, I'm going straight for the CEO, COO, and right. That doesn't work in construction. You have to do top, I do top down and, and bottom up. But there's also small, we have some companies that are great, which we're focusing more of our energy on, which are what we call smaller specialty contractors. They specialize in one part of construction. It might be concrete. It might be doing kitchen models and, and bathroom models. We have our first uh, enterprise customer with uh, 300 users and they do 300 kitchen remodels a week. So before Pixley, they have over 100 people out in the field. They go to somebody, they go to your house. You're like, you hired them to remodel your kitchen. They take a bunch of photos of the kitchen before they start, which is pre-existing conditions. They take photos of it being ripped out. They take photos of repairing anything behind there, whether it was mold or leaks or whatever. They take pictures of it being installed and they take pictures of it being done. And then they would email those to the project manager who would then manually put them on their CRM because I'm not sure exactly what percent, but they have warranty claims that might happen a couple of years down the road because a hinge broke or something. So we save them hours. We save each project, each kitchen project over an hour a day. So now everything's automatically shared. It goes right into their CRM. Everything's in one simple place for them and they love it. Did you have any assumptions before you launched and how have you updated those now that you've been in the fight? Like you've closed the LOIs, you've got the pilot program going. And now you have a, a better understanding of like, hey, this is really the value add that we bring. Yeah, I, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to be super optimistic, right? So I'm always the glasses half full and super optimistic guy. But the sales cycle for the bigger guys took longer than I thought. But on the flip side, the sales, the sales cycle for the smaller contractors, which are smaller users, which takes you a little bit longer to grow, can, can be shorter. Some of the other, I also thought it'd be a lot easier to raise capital. It's raising capital is the hardest thing I've ever done, for sure. Really? Yeah. Because people. Want, so what have you? So you, you know, maybe you know this or not. So there's different types of VC firms. There's pre-seed, right? You have an idea. Well, we'll invest in that. You'll we'll invest in your in your idea. Then there's seed, where you're validating your idea and you're getting you're getting revenue. Then there's like Series A. We really want to scale. So I'm not sure if it's just because of COVID or other circumstances or the market, but pre-seed guys or seed guys are like, oh. I need to see more revenue traction. I'm like, you're pre-seed. Why aren't we supposed to have revenue yet? So that's just a total blow off. I'm like, I'd rather you tell me you don't like me or the business just than, than tell me that. But I've also learned, and this is really important. I learned this the hard way. Don't talk to, the, so bigger firms, they have analysts and they want to do a bunch of research. They want to fill their own funnel for leads for the partners. They will suck up your time and waste your time. So they'll ask you a ton of questions. You might spend an hour with them on the phone doing a demo, follow-ups, doing your research. They have no authority. They, don't, they can't even really help you. So before I talk to any investors, I'm like, how big is your fund? What's left in it to deploy? Who, you, who did you write your last check to? What, do you, what is absolutely mandatory before you'll consider an investment, revenue-wise or IP or whatever? Because if it's a certain amount of MRR and I don't fit it, let's not talk. We can wait till later because that's an hour you know, I'm getting a customer. You know what? I'm going to do a blog post on that and I got it summed up. It's called actuals. Talk to actuals. 
So in the Marine Corps, <laughs> I can be a platoon commander, but when that sniper team is there, I want to talk to that sniper team leader. I don't care if he's a lance corporal or a private. You know, actuals talk to actuals. It's just, you're in charge of a fire team. I'm in charge of a platoon. Let's wrap. I don't need to talk to the in-between person. And yeah. for years, my first two years, two, three years, honestly, as an entrepreneur, that helped me back until I read a book by Alan Dibb, the Million Dollar Consultant, and he told me about the economic buyer. Who is the person that can cut the check? Yeah. And once I realized that, boom, I quit wasting my time with the little in-between person for, you know, corporate social responsibility, right? I want to talk to the CEO of that company, tell him what I'm doing in Newark, and then he makes it happen. But not all industries are like that. It's like you said, like, because the way construction works, right, that project manager, the construction, what's his title? The uh, the, the construction. Superintendent, the superintendent of the project. Yeah. yeah. I guarantee that means in construction, it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance with a superintendent, right? Yeah. So you can be in charge, you know, you be the CEO of the company, but on that site, on that day to day, when you lay your pillow, when you lay your head down at night and people are working through the night, you need to know that you can trust him. Yeah. And so what you can't do is undermine him or her and constantly make them do stuff without actually having buy-in. But that's not something people would know unless they actually spent time doing customer discovery. Because right. even with me, right, like, my, I have a gatekeeper. You know what I'm saying? The admin. You know, you Erica. If Erica don't like you, it's a wrap. <laughs> if CJ don't like you, it's a wrap. Because I trust my team. They're thinking partners. You know? And sometimes, yeah. even me, honestly, because, you know, I'm creating podcasts, I'm going to conference, I'm doing all these things, I don't always have time to take that initial call. And so... But if you know this, right, know that that's like my gatekeeper. So if you're good with her, you're probably good with me. <laughs> yeah, you got a great team for sure. So how different was it crafting a go-to-market plan for one of your own companies and getting out there and executing it compared to, you know, when you were brought in as this like fractional role or you did it internally with another company? Uh -huh. Well, when I've been brought in as a fractional CMO, it's usually with a substantial marketing budget. So it's a lot easier to say, oh, yeah, let's spend five grand here on a test, 10 grand here on a test. When it's your own money, you watch it. I mean, as a, as a fractional CMO, trust me, I'm hawkish on everything. But when it's your own money, you're, you stress it a lot harder. But yeah, I have a blueprint for, for B2B SaaS startups. You know, you got to know your market. You got to know your audience. You got to know your ICAs, your ideal client avatars or personas. You, I message a superintendent differently, differently than I message the owner or the project manager, or the, or the field engineer. They're different people with similar pains, but also, also different pains. But yeah, there's a, there's a playbook for it. Growth hacking. How, you know, how do you get ranked high in the app stores? How do you get high ranking in, the, in, the, in Google search? How do you do email nurture? So I've done all this stuff before, and I have, like, I have a playbook for it. I probably said that 10 times. But it's on me to execute it. Like It's all on me. Strategy, implementation, tracking, optimization. I get the lead, I close it. It's, it's right now, so far, until we can, until we start hiring some BDRs and SDRs, it's 100% me, which is great. There's nobody to complain. And I'm also the VP of sales, and I've been kicking my ass this last quarter trying to end the year on a big high note. No, that's, that's man, that's great insight because everybody is so quick to use marketing automation. You know, you got to do this. This is all automated. But also, man, like you said, it's super mechanical. It's you closing the sales. You know, it's you jumping yeah. in there and refining stuff. 
tweaking it, right? And I think sometimes in the early stages, I think a lot of founders try to automate before they actually get it working in, in the first place. Yeah, well, you can only automate it after it works. Yeah, I, I for B2B SaaS, I think this goes to direct-to-consumer, unless it's like a game or something, you have to pick up the phone and call people. Your customers are getting, I don't know, I get bombarded with emails all day, every day. You have to pick up the phone and you might have to call somebody 8, 10, 12 times before you actually get them on the phone because you have to build rapport. Like who, who's, who's Lee Mills? Great. They might see me on LinkedIn or not. They don't know who I am. You have to get on the phone with people, build rapport, understand their pain. I jokingly say like bro out with them over surfing or motorcycles or, or something, have some commonality outside of business, sometimes as kids. But the phone, people underestimate the importance of picking up the phone. Absolutely. I'd say that all the time. Leaders, too, especially as they have team members, right? Mm -hmm. They'll just start forwarding emails off and it lacks context. And, yeah. you know, you can, you know, I think about it like when you have an email come through, you don't know what state of mind I'm in. Yeah. I could be smiling. I could be upset. <laughs> and all you, the, the person on the other side of that screen, all they have to go off of is what you send them. So that's why I'm a big proponent, like you said, jumping on the phone and actually spending time trying to build rapport with people. Yeah, totally. One and question. Yeah, sorry. And no, that, like tone of voice is easily misunderstood in email or text, right? And then once I'm on the phone with somebody or they meet me, in person's better. Like, wow, you're really passionate about this, right? I'm like, you, yes, 100%. Like, why should I trust you? You're going to be in business for two years. You're going to sell it. I'm like, I'm in this forever. I'm your forever solution provider. And that can't happen via phone or text. I mean, I'm sorry, via email or text. You know, I'm a big proponent of Jim Collins. And one of the things he talks about is BHAGs, that big, hairy, audacious goal. Yes, sir. And I think a BHAG, I call it a pull. Like, what is pulling us, right? Because when life gets hard, you know, when funds are low, right, and you're trying to make a way out of no way, we're moving towards something, right? What is that BHAG for you? I love BHAG. My BHAG is to have a million customers in various industries because our platform solves problems for, I mean, our first customer was in one of the top insurance companies. Our second customer owns 14 franchise salons. It wasn't our, we didn't get our construction customer to as our third customer. It's a huge 10 year, half a billion dollar project. But our BHAG is to be the de facto number one solution provider for visual documentation and collaboration with a billion dollar valuation. And what about your personal BHAG? To be the best possible father I can for my daughter and be and help other veterans and entrepreneurs save as much pain as possible from what I've had to experience and to pay it forward. All right. Last two questions for you. We've got military veterans tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. As a community, how can we help you accomplish those BHAGs, your personal and professionally? And then what words of encouragement do you have to our listeners as they think about getting off the side of the pool and into the water or those that might just be treading and looking for a way out? Yeah, no, I love it. Well, first and foremost, if you know anybody that's in construction of any shape or size, anybody can try Pixley for free. It doesn't require a credit card. It's all based on storage. I have a referral program if anybody's interested in that. And any and all introductions are greatly appreciated. So that that's first and foremost. And then words of encouragement. <laughs> I mean, once you decide to go take the first step forward, don't look back and don't stop. And don't compare yourself to other people. There's always going to be competitors for sure. 
you have to believe in yourself, look at yourself in the mirror every day and, and confide and, and tell yourself you're going to do it. I do that every morning. I'm like, Lee Mills, we're doing this. Be prepared for the super, super lows. It's really, really lonely. I can't begin to tell you how lonely it is. That's the hardest part. And one of the best things about like Bunker Labs and MIC and, and everything else is like, yeah. like I did PenFed Veteran Entrepreneur Investment Program too. And that cohort from that group and I, like yeah. we talk like once a month, we have our own Slack channel. We're like rooting for each other. Like, how can we help each other? But be prepared for it to be like super, super lonely and hard. But when you do get that validation and somebody wants to pay for it or refer you to somebody, enjoy it. Like really just sit down and take a moment and enjoy it. And then also like the most important thing for anybody is really their health. And you can't do any of this if you don't take care of yourself. So, I mean, I work insane hours, but I find time every day somehow to get some type of exercise in for my mental well-being and my physical well-being so I can be here and make this a success. Man, I love it. All right, I'm, I'm going to take off my armor and get vulnerable, right? Okay. I go do CrossFit a couple times a week. And by say do CrossFit, I mean, I go in there and do my own program. Like, I ain't really doing the wads. I'm just <laughs> in there getting a the back squat, you know, bench press, some weighted pull-ups. You know what I mean? I'm getting it yeah. in. Yeah. But let me tell you. I just, sometimes I just need to be around people, you know? I'm in there this morning. I'm like Mr. Chatty Patty. I love talking to people in there because what they don't realize is if I'm not at my gym or I'm in that coffee shop, I can go through and I not, don't see people, you know? Because yep. you're just at your computer or whatever, just getting after it. But yep. I'm self-aware of that. So, like, as soon as I get back from the gym in the morning, I'm anxiously trying to get out of my place as quick as possible. I'm like, I just need to go. And I know you have a family and everything. But like, I mean, Lee is right, man. Entrepreneurship can be super lonely and your lives don't happen in a bubble, right? Deaths, people get sick, all this other stuff. And to be out there just kind of isolated. And that's what I talked about on my episode about, you know, mental health. So those of you out there, please just make sure you're taking care of yourself. Find a peer group. I don't care if it's damn your local gym, but do something because you just cannot be locked away grinding by yourself without somebody having overwatch. Yeah. And just one more thing. And then just like, I have like a gratitude mindset. So every day I wake up, I put my feet on the ground. I have a whole gratitude thing I go for, but give yourself some grace and be grateful that you have the opportunity to create your own business, whatever it might be. And that will help uh, give you fuel too. I love it, man. Lee, man, it's been an honor to have you on the platform. We're rooting for you. I'll Thank be you. sure to include a link to Pixley in the show notes. And like he said, if you know anybody in the construction industry, Please go ahead and reach out to uh, Lee on LinkedIn. Uh, drop him some leads, man. We got to help each other out, right? Like, it's good for y'all to listen to this free content, but we need y'all to contribute to the community. And a lead or an intro costs nothing or take nothing. Yep. Takes nothing. Just shoot that email, connect with us. This is how we continue to support one another, man. And so for all our listeners, I appreciate y'all. Be sure to head over to BunkerLabs.org to learn about all the amazing programs that we're offering. Until next time, everyone, peace, love. Have a great rest of your week.